Father, we are thankful for your grace and your goodness to us, and we thank you for the technology that makes makes it possible for us to meet as we do and to learn together. Uh, we're thankful, Father, that you control and are sovereign over all things. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us and giving us salvation and giving us your word. And we pray today as we uh, answer some questions and, and uh, look at your word, that you'd be glorified through our time of reflection and meditation upon your truth. Help us to submit our hearts and our minds and our will to your truth as you revealed it in Scripture, and that you would be glorified through uh, all that is uh, contemplated here by your people. And may you be honored through this time. Uh, give us strength for this time and resolve and encourage our hearts together in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you do have questions, uh, you can post them in the in the chat here, and Peter will clip them out for me, as I mentioned earlier. Um, one quick announcement, and I'll go into a little bit more detail about this uh, before the worship service, but the governor's orders are what we have been using sort of to determine our own course of action in this period of time. And according to what was released this last, I think it was Thursday, yeah, it was Thursday, uh, maybe Wednesday, the, um, there's no more restrictions upon church worship services. So if you go to, I think it's like rebound.idaho.gov, I think is the website. There's a whole protocol there that Governor Little, uh, released this last week that details, um, the whole reopening of the state and reopening the economy and getting back to normal, uh, all that stuff. So that, that's available on that website. And according to that, under phase one, and it's the third column, if you're looking for a quick reference to it, it says that churches and worship services can come back together and meet as long as we practice social distancing and disinfecting and going by CDC guidelines and all that stuff. So I'll talk a little bit more about that right before the worship service during announcement time then. But Lord willing, that means that this is our last streaming Sunday school uh, service, at least for the foreseeable future, until they determine that they need to shut everything down to avoid global warming or the common flu or the common cold or whatever it is that they decide next time is going to be the crisis. So next Sunday, I don't know, Jess or Cornell, one of uh, them is going to teach adult Sunday school class here. Um, if we have Sunday school, but don't know that yet. That's another thing I need to talk about right prior to the service. But uh, if we do have a Sunday school, Jess or Cornell will be teaching again. Um, because this break that I've had to do the streaming has really not been the break after God wrote a book that I had intended it to be. Um, although it is a break from God wrote a book, it's not a break from me doing Sunday school. Uh, so I guess you could argue that I've had one long break. I mean, teaching God wrote a book was a break from not teaching, and then doing the streaming is a break from God wrote a book. So really, Sunday school for me has been one long extended break. So I could teach next week, um, but I'm going to take a break from my other break and uh not teach Sunday school next week. So Jess and Cornell, Jess or Cornell will do that. And then we will be back in our worship service, uh, back resuming Hebrews chapter eight, beginning at verse one, picking up right where I left off. So for adult Sunday school class, um, just glanced, glanced down here at another question that came up. I wanted to revisit something that I talked about last week, which was the role of women in the church. Cause I had a Somebody email in kind of an extensive question about that, not in opposition to it at all, but for some clarification and uh, some questions about passages that uh, she said has been, have been used to teach certain things concerning this issue, and she wanted some clarification on that. So uh, this will be a good opportunity, and I don't mean to beat this drum, um, because the, the, the role of women in the church is, um, though it is not a what we would call a, a heretical issue or a, a primary issue, it is very close to being a primary issue, as you'll see here in just a moment. In other words, you could you could be wrong about this and still be saved, 
But ultimately, if you look at what Scripture says concerning this subject and you still want to be wrong about it, that's good reason to question exactly what the role of Scripture is in your life and whether you really do have the Holy Spirit. Um, because people who are confronted with the truth on this issue of women's roles, men's roles, gender distinction, actually, generally speaking, um, and then they resist that truth, that's a really serious issue. So this is a... This is a very important issue, and uh, as I hope to show you at the end, I think that your view on this is going to be connected to your view on a whole lot of, of other issues. So, um, this is an issue that, let me begin before I, before I start that, let me begin by affirming that I have nothing against women at all. I ha I've raised two of them, and I'm married to one. I don't hate women. This is not an issue of hating women or an issue of being a patriarch or an issue of being a, a sexist or anything like that. This is really an issue of submitting ourselves and our minds and our wills to what God has revealed in Scripture is best for us according to his created order. So that's really what this is an issue. Uh, that's really what this issue is. And anybody who would say, well, you just hate women or you're just a misogynist or you are... Um, you're a brutal dictator or you're just a sexist and, and you want to oppress women. That is, those are emotional appeals. They're not rational appeals. They're certainly not appeals that have anything to do with scripture. So I want to walk through the issue just with a little bit more detail that I've had a chance this last week to kind of think through some of the implications of this and, and some of the ways that I would answer this. And then I want to, I want to deal with the question specifically that was raised uh, in an email to me this last week. So this is an issue that in our day right now is deserving of some attention simply because um, as the social justice movement is gaining ahead of steam and people are pushing forward with e equality and egalitarianism. And, and by the way, what they mean is equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity or equality before the law or anything like that. They want equality of outcome. So as they're pushing forward with all of these egalitarian perspectives and and uh, social justice perspectives and everything um it is it is creeping into the church through the social justice movement and unfortunately um the southern baptist denomination is going south in a hurry and a lot of people connected to the southern baptist denomination are going south in a hurry um and that includes the the gospel coalition some of the stuff that they have posted and some directions that they have gone on this issue as well the, this issue of egalitarianism is creeping into the church. Um, I shouldn't say creeping. It's being pushed into the church at breakneck speed, actually. And so, so much so that this last, uh, what was it, two, um, I think it was the summer of 2019 or 18. I, I forget which one it was now. It was 2000 and, 2000 and I guess it was 19. Um, last summer. Beth Moore's name was floated as a possible president for the Southern Baptist Convention, which of course would put her in a position of authority in many ways over men uh, within a church structure, certainly within a denominational structure. And one of her responsibilities would be in a teaching role there, uh, obviously preaching and teaching at general conferences and, and different conventions and conferences and Southern Baptist events, etc. And um, Beth Moore really never came out to my knowledge and, uh, you know, came out on the on on our side of it and said, "No, I could never do that. That would be a a violation of scripture." And if you know anything about Beth Moore, it's simply because uh, she has no problem teaching men. And uh, this last uh, Easter, she she posts tweets the last two Easter services about being invited to speak in these Southern Baptist churches and how she takes the pulpit uh, behind the pulpit for uh, these massive churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. So she is she is all in 
on teaching men and exercising authority over man. And uh, this is so much an issue that actually recently as elders, we've talked about the possibility of having a, a special Saturday seminar. You remember like we did with the same-sex marriage after the Obergefell decision with the Supreme Court? We had an evening seminar where we spent about three hours kind of walking through as elders the theology and the practice of of, uh, of how we're going to deal with that and, and what the implications of that would be for the church, both theologically and practically. And uh, we devoted quite a lot of time to preparing for that and then uh, taught that session. And we've been talking about the possibility, and I think it was Dave Rich actually who raised the issue about doing that for the egalitarian complementarian debate. And if you're wondering what the word egalitarian and complementarian are, um, let me define those terms for you just briefly. The complementarian, well, let me begin with the egalitarian. The egalitarian perspective is that men and women, because they are equal in, in nature, in terms of their ontology, their value before God as created beings, both made in the image of God, because they are equal in value and worth, they are therefore equal in their roles. And so there is an equality there that whatever a man can do, a woman can do. And so if a men are called to, to teach and preach in the church, then the egalitarian would say, so women are called to teach and preach in the church. So women can be elders and women can be deacons and women can exercise authority over men and women can be leaders in, in any capacity that a man uh, exercises, a woman can exercise the same capacity. That's the egalitarian perspective. Uh, just think of equality of outcome, of roles, of value and everything. If, if women are valuable in one way, therefore there can be no submission to authority, no no ranking of authority with by gender roles. Um, that's the egalitarian perspective. The complementarian perspective says that men and women, though ontologically in terms of their being, their being, their value uh, as created beings in the image of God, their ontology or their their value of being is equal. But there are gender or role distinctions which God has revealed not only in creation but also in Scripture itself in terms of the roles that he expects men to fulfill in the home and in the public gathering of the saints and, and worship and preaching and teaching, etc. And then there are roles that are revealed for the woman to fulfill in the home and in the church as well. And so that there is an equality, but the complementarian says that these two genders complement each other. They complement one another so that they go together. And then, then the, the, the weakness of the man is offset by the strengths of a woman and the weaknesses of the women are offset by the strengths of the men. But there are separate and distinct roles that each gender has that God has ordained. And those roles complement one another, complementarianism, for the benefit of the family and for the benefit of the church and the people of God. So that's the, those are the two different, two different views. And I'm obviously a complementarian and not an egalitarian. So, here is the position, basically, of a complementarian. A complementarian would say that that the distinction between genders inside the church is a reflection not of culture, but it reflects an order that was revealed in creation. And that revealed order, that order that was revealed, and those gender distinctions revealed in creation, also come over into the church. And that the church has a responsibility to honor the gender roles and the gender distinctions that God has set in Scripture and revealed in creation. That's the complementarian position. So as a complementarian, I would go back to Genesis chapter 2 and, and the creation of men and women and the roles. And I would say man is created first and he is given dominion. He is given authority over the creation. A woman is created to be his helpmate and to come alongside of him. There's an order there of creation. Men first and women taken from the side of man 
and that uh and that 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 complementarian that complementary nature of all of creation male and female animals and and all the rest of creation that this is um then seen because Adam was alone, it is seen to be something that was a defect that Adam was, that there is a not good that Adam should be alone. So God created a woman to be his helper and to be his companion. And, and so that's, that's the order of creation and that's what is revealed in creation. Then I would turn to first Timothy chapter two. Well, before that first Corinthians chapter 11 I talked about this last week with the head covering, etc. And Paul there in 1 Corinthians 11 appeals to the order of creation and he goes back to creation itself to talk about the gender roles and distinctions that should be displayed inside the church. Um, and so Paul, Paul puts that on display in 1 Corinthians 11 that these, these distinctions are necessary, the, not just the gender distinctions, but the role distinctions as well. So that men have certain roles and women have certain roles and, um, and, and these ought to be displayed in how the church conducts or comports itself. Then 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to, to preach or, or to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And as I mentioned last week, in the context of Paul saying uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and following, that he writes these things so that we ought to know how to conduct ourselves in the church of God, uh, to the pillar and support of the truth amongst uh, the church as a family of God. That those instructions in 1 Timothy are given so that Timothy and us, by virtue of the fact that we live and we have that epistle, that we would know how it is that we ought to organize and structure and and run a church. For Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus were given those pastoral epistles, given for that purpose. So in First Timothy chapter three, Paul gives the the detailed instructions for the qualifications of an elder first, and then of a deacon. I think elder verses one through seven, I think it is, and and the deacon verses eight through fifteen, and he speaks there about deacons' wives as well. Those qualifications and those roles, elder and deacon within the church, those are leadership roles that exercise authority. Both of them do to some extent, a prescribed authority inside the church. Uh, those roles are to be filled by men. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. And keeping in mind that the, the chapter division between the end of chapter two, where Paul puts that prohibition on women teaching and exercising authority over a man, that chapter division is artificial. It needs to vanish in your mind because Paul is not switching subjects. I've, ha I've heard somebody argue that the gender distinctions or the woman teaching and exercising authority over a man only applies to the home. And then the church is chapter three, verses one, as if there's this distinction, this division between chapters two and three, that chapter two is dealing with the home and the woman's role in the home, chapter three with, with men in the church. And so women can exercise authority and teach men in the church. That's how that view would go. It's kind of a, a modified egalitarian view. But the chapter distinction, the chapter division is an artificial one put in hundreds of years after the book was written. In Paul's mind, there was no chapter division there. In the early church and Timothy's reading of it, there was no chapter division there. Paul goes immediately out of a discussion of the role of women in exercising authority and teaching men into a list of qualifications where a man aspires to the office of an overseer who must be able to teach. So the teaching role in the church in terms of the corporate body when the corporate body comes together in a mixed audience of men and women, that teaching office must be held by a man. It must be held by an elder. And only men can be elders because they have to be a man who aspires to that office. It's a fine work that he desires to do, and he must be the husband of one wife. That is, in Paul's mind, the office of elder could in no way at any time be held by a woman. And it's not because Paul was a sexist. 
is because Paul was recognizing the gender distinctions that are established by God in creation and then revealed in Scripture. Those gender distinctions, those role distinctions that are there with uh, someone in authority, exercising authority, other people submitting to that within the church, in the teaching office, that office belongs to men, not to women. And since an elder and a pastor and a shepherd and an overseer, they are all the same office, therefore a woman can women cannot be a pastor. Another sort of modified egalitarianism would say that men must be elders, but a woman can be a pastor of a church, and that elders can serve alongside of her, and those elders must be men, but a woman can be a pastor. That's There's no distinction in the office of pastor or elder anywhere in the New Testament, and so we would reject that out of hand. The pastor slash elder slash overseer slash shepherd must be a man who aspires to that office of an overseer, and he must be one who rules his own household well, and he must be one who uh, is the husband of one wife. And so what about women? In the corporate assembly, which I think is what First Timothy is dealing with, when you gather together as the church of God, in that corporate gathering where there are men and women both present, Paul did not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So you can't have a woman who is an elder slash pastor but never teaches, and you can't have a woman who is teaching and in that way exercising authority over a man. Both of those are prohibited from women for women. Um, so that that gender distinction, that role distinction within the church goes back to not culture, but creation. And Paul argues that in First Timothy chapter two, where he talks about the the woman being first deceived and not the man, and Adam being created first. These, this order of creation is something that must be reflected in the authority structure of a local church and in the way that the church comports its, its entire ministry. It must reflect and honor the distinctions that are there that God has established in creation, in creating man first and then woman. And if these, if these role distinctions and gender distinctions, if the prohibition against women were only a cultural thing, then why does Paul go all the way back to creation in establishing the precedent there? And in both 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, Peter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul goes back to the created order. In other words, this is a creation ordinance, a creation, something established at creation, not something that is in flux in culture as times change and we become more enlightened and we start to see how oppressive and backwards and unenlightened our forefathers were. That's the attitude sometimes among some egalitarians. Oh, that was just a cultural thing. Paul was just prohibiting a cultural thing. Paul doesn't argue from culture. He doesn't say in our culture, um, the Romans or the Greeks would never understand um, why how a woman could teach or exercise authority over a man. They're just not enlightened enough. And so culturally, we should keep men, uh, women from doing that because the Greeks won't understand it. Because that would have been true. I mean, the Greeks, the Greek culture was a culture where the, the women, the wife stayed home and managed the house and raised the children. And then men had mistresses on the side for all of the fun stuff. And the women stayed home and just raised the children and managed the home. So there was, you know, women were, were horribly abused and treated as chattel in the Roman culture, in the first century Roman and Greek culture that in which Paul lived. And so Paul didn't, Paul was not uh, affected by that cultural perspective. And he doesn't argue for that perspective of women not exercising authority over men. He doesn't argue that from culture. He argues it from creation as if culture doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your culture says. It doesn't matter what the current contemporary view of men and women and gender distinctions and roles are. 
It's not a cultural issue. It's not a times issue. It's not a, it's not a, we live in a different time and a different epoch of human history. And there's none of that. It goes back to creation. And, uh, so it, it doesn't matter what our culture says. And, and when I was asked, um, by somebody one time about why our church doesn't allow women to pastor or to preach on a Sunday morning, I simply said, because scripture prohibits women from doing that period. And it's not a cultural issue. So it doesn't matter what the culture says. It's a matter of what scripture is revealed and something established in creation. And so you're either obedient to that or you're disobedient to that. And of course, the answer that this person gave me back was, well, that we believe that that was a different cultural thing and we've moved beyond that. And I simply said, well, Paul's argument is not cultural, it's creation. So therefore, it doesn't change with culture. It doesn't matter what your culture says. It, doesn't, it would not have mattered at all what Paul's culture of the first century was. Truth is truth. And, and, and Paul does not even appeal at all to culture. So that's a creation ordinance. All right. So then this brings up the, the gender distinctions. Um, here's the question that was asked, uh, in an email. And again, to clarify, this was not somebody who was, this is somebody who agrees with everything I've just poured out for you. This is somebody who's entirely on this page, but they were asking about some teaching that they heard that kind of would be, uh, my position on steroids, I think. Um, and she didn't tell me who it was who taught this that I could guess, but she didn't mention who it was that taught this, but here was the, here was the question. Um, recently I heard a pastor use Genesis two, 15 to 18 to say that women should not teach women's Bible studies. Only the elders and the pastors should teach women. Since God only gave Adam the instructions about not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and then expected Adam to instruct Eve what God's word said, that this then applies to all of Scripture. So I'll read to you Genesis 2. You might already be there a little bit ahead of me. Genesis 2, 15 through 18. So verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So that's, you know, God created man, he put him in the garden, gave him the instruction regarding the tree. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him make him a helper suitable for him. So then God created Eve, and the implication is then that that God expected Adam to communicate that command, God's word, to Eve, and that this then would apply to all of Scripture. Um, therefore, anything God says, the whole gamut, anything God says, must not be communicated by a woman to any kind of an audience, but only by a man to all women, so that women's Bible studies would be taught by men, uh, the children's Sunday school classes would all be taught by men. Um, women teaching and discipling other women would be prohibited in terms of scripture. It would be a man who did this, a man and only the elders who did that. That would be the position. And so the question then was, was this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Um, also, since Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.23 named, or sorry, also, since Adam named Eve, just as he named the animals in Genesis 2, 19 through 20 and 23, this gives him dominion over her because of the biblical examples of God naming and renaming people and that name showing something about that person and giving that person who names them authority over them and plans for their lives, like God renamed Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, and Peter, etc., etc. So then the question becomes, is what we see in Genesis chapter 2 descriptive or prescriptive? 
Um, we would know that it is prescriptive if we saw something else in scripture that would indicate that it was only, uh, that it was prescriptive. For instance, if Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach. Period. Ever. Anything. Ever. Then you would know that that is prescriptive. But God gave that instruction to Adam and commanded Adam to name the animals, I think, in order to demonstrate to Adam that he was alone and that he had no buddy like the animals, had a complementary uh, complimentary, uh, mate or a complementary portion of, of, of creation for them. Uh, Adam named the animals so that he might recognize that he did not have that. Um, I think God's act of allowing Adam to name the animals, yes, was exercising dominion over the animals. Um, but it was also a gracious thing that made Adam to realize that he was alone and that this was not good. So that when God created a woman, he would not, he would see her as the, the blessing that she was to him. So that is why I think God allowed Adam to name, name the animals. Um, there's nothing in the context that says that this is prescriptive for all of time, and there's nothing else in Scripture that says women can't ever teach, even if it's other women or children. There's, it's just not in Scripture. So I think that that's an I'd say it's an abuse. I think it's going beyond what's written in Genesis chapter two to try and make that case. Uh, I think it certainly describes what happened simply because Eve wasn't there. So of course God set spoke it to Adam. He was the only one that was there. Um, did God intend for Adam to share that with his wife? Yeah, I think he probably did. Um, but since, but, but Adam, after God created Eve, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. Uh, they enjoyed, Eve would have enjoyed fellowship with God just as Adam did. Uh, I see no reason to believe that, uh, Eve did not understand that or even be taught other things by God directly or that, um, she couldn't have enjoyed that fellowship with God apart from Adam, etc. There's just nothing. The order of events there, I think, is specific. I think it's clear, but I don't think it's prescriptive in terms of, for all time, anything about God's word that's communicated to woman has to be create, communicated by only another man. Um, and to, to see this, uh, I think you need to ask, here's the second part of the question. I think we need to answer the second part of the question, because not only is Genesis 2 used in that way by this person, but Titus chapter 2 is used similarly. This person uses Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, to say that women can teach women, but only about women's stuff, like being a wife, a mother, or running a household. Let me go over here to Titus chapter 2. Um, this person is not supportive of neuthetic counseling or direct counseling, but did acknowledge that a woman could meet one-on-one -on -one with another woman to exhort her with Scripture. Um so Titus 2, verses 3 through 5 say, Older women likewise are to be reverent their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. All right, so this person would say that Titus chapter 2 says that women can teach women, but only woman stuff, only women stuff, not, not scripture, only women stuff, okay? So what's the woman stuff that women are supposed to be able to teach women in the context of Titus chapter 2? Well, Paul says they're to uh, teach them not to be 
to be reverent in their behavior. Okay, so how would a woman teach, an older woman teach a younger woman to be reverent in their behavior? What would reverence look like? How would you even describe what reverence is? Wouldn't you have to appeal to some source? Wouldn't you have to look to, to some example of something in, in, in some book somewhere to teach a woman what reverence is? Or if women are to teach other women what uh, malicious gossips are, where would you find prohibition against malicious gossip? Where would you find information about malicious gossip? And you look to scripture for that? Or if women are to teach other women not to be enslaved to much wine, where would you find God's standards and expectations regarding wine and the use of wine and not being enslaved to much wine? Or if older women are to teach the younger women what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, where would you find commands about loving your husband and the role of men and women and what it means to be submissive to your husband, as Paul says in Second Titus chapter 2, that they should be love their husbands, to love their children, where would you find, where would an older woman find information um, about God's will regarding how to raise their children, to love their children, or to nurture their children? Or if the older women are to teach the younger women to be sensible and pure and workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, where would they find information about God's expectations for being pure and subject to their husbands and gentle and workers at home and kind? Where would they look for that instruction? So explain to me how a woman meets with a women or other women, multiple women, and gives them all of those instructions without in any way appealing to Scripture and doing it in a God-honoring fashion. How would an older woman do that without using Scripture? And if an older woman does that with one woman, communicating that with one woman, she's able to use Scripture for that, but not in a group of women to do that? Does that make any sense? That makes no sense. So I think that the whole prohibition about that goes far beyond that complementary compliment complementarianism perspective, uh, that whole far far that perspective is far beyond that is I think unbiblical. I think that is an abuse or a misuse of those passages. I think it's going beyond what is written. So what then does it look like for women to fulfill their role, even teaching roles within the church? I think it's okay for women to teach children. I think that we get into um, I, I think we get into a real potential conflict of interest when you have women who are teaching uh, teens, teen boys, and mixed company there. Um, I think that that has to be done carefully, uh, if at all. Uh, I think that that's a, a, I think that's where we begin to get, get out of what I think is allowable into we're getting close to what might not be allowed in that situation. Um, women obviously should be able to teach, can teach small children. They can teach their own children. They can teach other people's children. Women can teach other women. Women can lead Bible studies with women. When the, the only prohibition in scripture in the context of the church is first Timothy chapter two, which prohibits a woman from exercising authority over man. So if you have a man present who is there in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, a learning role under the authority of that woman, I think we have a violation of that principle. So here as a church, here is what we, here is how we honor those gender and rule distinctions. We make sure that the women can serve in music ministry up front, that it's Josh or Mel or Jason or Ron or one of those men who is the clear leader there. He can have women up there who are helping him lead and contributing to that ministry, but the clear and un, uh, unambiguous leader in that worship setting needs to be a man. And he needs to honor that. Those gender and role distinctions need to be honored there. We do not permit women to get up and to read scripture in the public worship service. 
We do not allow women to get up and to teach in the public or to preach in the public worship service or to teach adult Sunday school class. And you will notice that in all of the things that we do in terms of, of who is leading, from the moment you walk in the door, it's men who will hand you the bulletin, young men or older men or ancient men in some cases, right, Vince? Um, they will hand you the bulletin and they will be the ones that, that welcome you there, the first person you walk in the door. The security, it's men. The people who help serve communion, men. Leaders of the worship service, men. The teaching and preaching in the mixed assembly, men. The people who are monitoring in the hallways, they're men. And that that is intended to communicate something right when you walk in the door. That this is a church made up men, made up of men who take their leadership role seriously and do everything they can to serve others in leadership roles, handing you things, welcoming you, protecting you, teaching you. Those are all acts of service. That, that, that the use of that authority and that leadership role is intended to be a service and a blessing to the body of Christ and all those who come here. And you will find in churches where women are allowed to step into any or all of those leadership roles that eventually men will just back out of it. If women are going to do it, men will back out of it. Women are going to teach. Why should I step up and teach? Women are going to lead. Why should I step up and lead? Women are willing to do serve, serve communion. Why should, why should I do that? Men will just simply back out of that. Whereas as a church, everything that we do is, is intended to communicate that, look, if you're a man, we expect you to lead at home. We expect you to lead in the church. We expect you to up your game, to step up, to be a man, to take your gender role seriously, to take the position that God has given to you seriously and to serve others in love by leading them graciously, just as Jesus Christ leads his bride, the church. That's our expectation. So everything we do is intended to communicate that, to honor those gender and role distinctions. And there's nothing unbiblical about submission. And when a woman submits to that teaching or that leadership role, there's nothing unbiblical about submission. The Lord Jesus Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father in coming to this earth and dying for the sins of a lost humanity, even though Jesus Christ was fully functionally equal with the Father. Fully equal, equal in his being, his substance, his nature, equal with the Father, but the Lord Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Father and, and took the form of a servant and then came and as a leader served others in love by offering himself on a cross for us. So that is the type of leadership that I think is biblical. That is the type of leadership prescribed in Scripture. And that is what we try and seek to honor here in this church to recognize God's gender roles and, and gender distinctions and to do it in a way that honors him while we expect men to, to up your game and lead. And uh, though we don't have to get up there and berate men because we got men who are great leaders amongst us, absolutely fantastic, and they do a great job. And that they get it, they understand it, and they exercise it in love and in grace. Um, so we are a blessed congregation that we have that. Um, here would be my challenge to you to show you how significant this is. Uh, I would challenge you to show me a church pastored by a woman Okay, now, there are a lot of them. Show me a church pastored by a woman that also has the following qualities. And here they are. Number one, biblical theology. From top to bottom, a biblical orthodox theology. A biblical theology of creation. A biblical theology of the nature of God. A biblical theology of the Trinity. A biblical theology of Scripture. 
that believes that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible and inspired word of God, not culturally dependent upon uh, or not dependent upon culture for its, its relevance of truth. Show me a script, a church pastored by a woman who has biblical theology concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death, the doctrine of repentance and the doctrine of saving faith. I'm not asking you to, to give me a, a Calvinistic church pastored by a woman, just an Orthodox one, just Orthodox. Doesn't have to agree with me in absolutely everything, but show me a church who's who's pastored by a woman or that allows women on their elder board who is biblical in its theology from top to bottom. Doesn't have to be as what you might hardcore or radical as I am or or whatever. Just orthodox. Just I mean that's a big that's a big one. That's a big one. That's a big puddle. Orthodox. Okay. Number one, biblically orthodox from top to bottom. Number two, that has a biblical philosophy of ministry. See, this is the this is the kicker right here because. If you got a woman as a pastor, it doesn't have a biblical philosophy of ministry, does it? Because the philosophy of ministry would be to say that First Timothy 2 doesn't matter and gender roles don't matter. And if you say that gender roles don't matter, you're going to have to go back to creation and redefine what's going on there. Um, but a biblical philosophy of ministry where the gospel is the center of that. And in fact, just show me a church pastor by a woman who has a biblical theology, biblical philosophy of ministry, and a biblical presentation of the gospel where people are called sinners and called on the carpet for their sin, where the wrath of God is preached and salvation in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the capstone, the foundation, and the central aspect of, of its gospel presentation. Biblical theology, biblical philosophy of ministry, and a biblical presentation of the gospel. Show me a church pastored by a woman that just fits those three qualifications. You cannot. You cannot. And the reason you cannot is because, simply because, Long before, on the trajectory that t- transpires before a woman ever gets the position of teaching elder in a congregation, long before that happens, there's been a downward trajectory where truth has been relegated to the back burner, where people don't cons- aren't concerned about truth, people aren't reading their Bibles, people aren't understanding the gospel properly, people aren't concerned that the Bible informed their philosophy of ministry, they aren't concerned that the Bible informed their perspective of genders and role distinctions and sexual- human sexuality, etc., uh, long before a woman ascends to that position, the church has already entered upon a trajectory that is, it's not even a slight trajectory. It's already, it's already set downward at an incredible pace. This is why I said to Justin Peters some weeks ago, the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention, that leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention would be talking about Beth Moore being president, the fact that that is even being discussed seriously by serious leaders in that denomination is evidence that it's, it's all, it's gone. They've already lost the war. Now they're just, there's just skirmishes going on on the sidelines. They have already fundamentally given up that ground. And you can trace the mainline denominations of Methodism, Presbyterianism, the Anglican Church, every single one of them, the New Apostolic Reformation, the Word of Faith movement, the Charismatic Churches, all of them. There's a trajectory there that where scripture means nothing and it goes downhill to the point where then a woman ascends to the position of teaching elder. And by then you have, you have long left orthodoxy. The day that such a move is discussed in our congregation is the day that it's already done. Shutter the doors and write Ichabod over the top of it. The glory has departed. You've already left orthodoxy. You've already left orthodoxy. So is this an essential for your salvation doctrine? No, you can disagree on this. But I hope that you understand that once you see the biblical teaching on this issue, that submitting to it is an evidence of your of your own willingness to submit to the truth of God, however uncomfortable it might make you feel at the time. 
that we honor God and his truth and what is revealed in scripture. And the only way to, to hold on to an egalitarian perspective is to jettison what God says in scripture and say, well, I'm going to cling to what makes me feel good, or I'm going to cling to what is fashionable or popular at the moment in spite of what scripture teaches. So that's, uh, that's where we're at with that. Now let me get to a few questions here and I'll, I can go through these, I think, um, quickly. Uh, question number one from Rachel. Will there be dinosaurs on the new earth that God will recreate? Um, that's a good question. I have no reason to believe that there will not be animals on the new creation, on the new earth. And if God created animals, uh, dinosaurs in for the Garden of Eden, which they were there with men in the Garden of Eden, and uh, probably dinosaurs, well, definitely dinosaurs on the on Noah's Ark as well. Uh, if they were there in the Garden of Eden, why wouldn't they be there in the new heavens and the new earth? Uh, I used to have a T-shirt that says, "If history repeats itself, next time around, I want to own a dinosaur." Uh, that's true. I, I if um, in the new heavens and the new earth, if there are animals involved there, which I think that there will be, um, then I think that I want to have a pet dinosaur, and I wouldn't even mind to have a raptor because they're not going to eat flesh or or go after you or anything like that. Um, by the way, the raptors of Jurassic Park are not the actual size of the raptors. An actual raptor back then was like, they're like 18 inches tall. They're just tiny little things that look like a, like a poodle. Um, that's the actual size of a raptor. Steven Spielberg had to make it much bigger and scarier, obviously, for the, for the movies. Okay. Next question. Psalm 82. Who are the gods judged in the passage? Um, Jesus refers to this in John chapter 10, Psalm 82, the gods being judged there, the, the God simply meant the, the rulers of the nation of Israel. Um, they were the ones who, who were warped. They were the ones who were, who were judging Israel unrighteously and, um, and in sin. And God there pronounces judgment upon them, calling them gods, not because they were actual gods, but because they were mere men who, in a theocratic system, ruled as God's representatives. They ruled in the place of God over the nation. They were intended to be, um, they were intended to rule as God would himself rule if he were ruling the nation, but they didn't. And so they're gods with a little g, not in a sense that they were divine or, or semi-god, or demigods or in any way kind of partial gods, but uh, they're gods with a little g in the sense that they were functioning in that capacity and should have been ruling as God would rule, but they didn't. And so God pronounced judgment. The true God pronounced judgment upon those gods who were the men uh, ruling the nation of Israel. That's Psalm 82. Next question, specifically and practically, what is the opposite of worshiping idols? I'm, I'm reading this just without having looked at them yet, so I don't know what's going on here. Uh, specifically and practically, what is the opposite of worshiping idols? And what is a good way to turn your heart from worshiping an idol of my heart and turn it towards God? Uh, the opposite of worshiping idols is worshiping the one true God. There's no, there's no middle ground there, by the way. If you're not, uh, John Calvin said the, the heart, the human heart is an idol factory. We churn out one idol after another and it, has, it doesn't have to be some physical thing that we bow down to. It can be, um, something that we hold near and dear that distracts us from truth and something that we love at any given moment more than we love God. It could be fame, popularity, wealth, um, comforts, creature comforts, pleasure, uh, security, safety, uh, my own reputation, uh, uh, my own health. It could be any of those things that would be uh, things that we cherish at any given moment more than we cherish God. And minute we elevate something above God, it becomes an idol, it becomes something that we bow down and worship. And there's no limit to the number or the manner of idols that we as fallen human beings can create in our hearts. Uh, Ezekiel describes the idols of the heart. It doesn't have to be something physical, it be something in my heart that has that first place. 
The opposite of that is recognizing it and going to war against it. We we battle the sin of idolatry just like we battle any other sin. We we go to war. We recognize in that moment, this means more to me than God means, and this determines my view and how I'm responding to truth at this moment. Um, therefore, i got to go to war with it and kill it. I need to hate it. I need to pray that God give me a hatred for it. And every time I find myself in my mind bowing down to that idol and giving it homage and worship and obedience and attention, I need to stop it and turn and focus my attention on God. I'm turning from that idol and I'm turning to God to worship and to serve him. So that's what repentance is. It's turning one thing from one thing and turning to something else. Uh, just as I would turn from sexual immorality to worship the one true and living God. So you turn from idolatry to worship the one true and living God. The process and the, the principles are very much the same. It's just a matter of, of us being able to recognize and training ourselves to recognize what the idols of our hearts are. Next question. Hello from St. Mary's, Georgia. I'd like your thoughts on tithing and what it says in Malachi 3, I believe verse 8 through 11. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Yeah, so tithing and making tithes and offerings in, under the old covenant was something mandated by law to the Jewish nation. It wasn't just 10%. The Jews had um, tithes of of ten percent. As I think there was three, by some reckonings, three ten percent tithes. One of them was every third year. So a Jew was was required to give something around twenty to thirty percent of his income or his sustenance to God, and and those were for running the temple, running the priesthood, running the theocratic nation of Israel, etc. Those tithes were offered up. Uh, by virtue of the law, but we're not under law. And so the principle in the New Testament is not tithing, but it's grace giving. We don't give 10%. We give as the Lord has prospered us. And so Paul lays this out in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. <clears throat> we are to give according to how God has prospered each one of us. And there might be seasons in your life where you give more for whatever reason and seasons in your life where you give less. But that each end, what, what is required of each individual person, the, whether it's percentage or how we give or where we give, is something that we have to work out with the Lord. It's not something that's prescribed by us by law because we're not under that old covenant. And so in the New Testament, we do see that God loves a cheerful giver, that God blesses us according to how we sow, and that if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. And so the challenge then is, how do we sow bountifully? How do we, how do we give graciously and lovingly and cheerfully so that God is pleased with it and we honor him in it? How much is that? For some people, 10% is a sacrifice that is that hurts them horribly because of the bills or their lack of income or they're in a difficult season for whatever reason. For some people, 10% is a, is a, is a real sacrifice. For other people, 10% isn't even a good tip. It's just some people are able to give 50 or 60 or 90% of their income and it wouldn't affect them at all. It wouldn't affect how they live at all. They could still save. They could still be secure and prosperous, etc. So whether it's 10% or 90%, 9%, 2%, that's up to each individual person to determine for themselves. The question should be, am I giving cheerfully? Am I giving faithfully? Am I giving as an act of worship? And am I giving such a way that it is that in that act of worship, it is a sacrifice and an offering to the Lord? Can you please clarify what clarify that we as men learn from women all the time? Is there a specific context for this? Well, yeah, and the context is in the in the context of a local church. So, yeah, men do men do learn from women. My t my wife teaches me things all of the time about all kinds of different things. But um, my wife doesn't sit down and lead family devotions, and I sit there and learn from her, and she leads that. No, no, she doesn't. I I lead that. That's my job. That's my role. Um, and so, yeah, do, men do learn learn from women and can. What Paul's talking about is how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. In the home, um, women can teach. 
Uh, women can even teach their husbands certain things. Like if I wanted to sit down and learn how to do the books for our family or how that's all structured with our accounting and everything, I would have to go to my wife and she would have to teach me that. Um, that would be her, her role. But I wouldn't ask my wife to teach me scripture and I wouldn't ask my wife to instruct me in theology. That wouldn't be my, that wouldn't be proper or right. I, I as a man should study that out, find other men, find somebody who's an elder or a, a pastor of the church and, and able to give me that instruction. That, that would be how a man would handle that. Um, so a woman can, they can sit down, you can have conversation with your women, but with, with a woman, with your wife, um, in the context of the home without violating first Timothy chapter three, this becomes very difficult for men who are far less mature and equipped to teach and handle scripture when they marry a woman who is very mature, biblically has been well taught and understands her theology well. Um, this becomes a challenge to how you work out that role distinction in the home in that context um, while a woman submits to her husband as well as graciously helps him as a helpmate to him. A man and a wife can can walk through that. In the context of a local church, we're talking about something entirely different, and that's what First Timothy addresses. Um, what are your thoughts on abortion? Abortion is murder. It is the unjustified taking of human life. And I would just point you to our website. We had a whole bioethics conference with Scott Klusendorf on that issue that we hosted here last fall. And he goes through that. It's not, it's not, our conference is not one of those things where you put up pictures of aborted fetuses on the, on the screen constantly. That's not what Scott was doing. And, and maybe that's why a lot of people didn't attend as it wasn't as well attended as we thought it might be is because people thought it was going to be just one graphic presentation of abortion after another. It wasn't anything like that. It was a, it was a well-reasoned, clearly articulated defense of human life and uh, answering abortion arguments. So I would uh, I would turn you to that link on our website, which um, hosts the entire bioethics conference with Scott Klusendorf, the best training on the pro-life issue that you can get bar none. Um, all right, that that is it. That is it that we have in the chat channel. So that is our Sunday school class. Uh, I'm going to give it here about 90 seconds or so before I wrap this up and hit the stop button so that I can go back to sipping my coffee and maybe even get up from my desk. No, I'm just kidding, Deidre. See, I didn't do that. Get up from my desk. Just playing. Um, so I hope that helps spell out for you a little bit about the um, my lesson notes, the women in roles of women in ministry and gender distinctions. I hope that helps make that clear.